ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah 7. We'll be looking at the chapter, but I'd like to begin by reading from verse 10 to verse 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 14 is popularly regarded as having a reference to the birth of our Messiah, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And rightly so, because in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, Matthew cites this particular verse as having direct reference to the virginal conception and birth of the Lord Jesus. But we miss the vividness, we miss the thrust of these verses, of verse 14 in particular, if we fail to take note of the context in which these words were uttered. And to get an idea... To get an appreciation of this passage, we need to focus for a little while on a man, a king of Judah, by the name of Ahaz. The twelfth king of Judah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, ascended the throne around 735 BC at 20 years of age. And from the outset of his reign, and in fact for most of his reign, he was plagued by extremely tense geopolitical challenges. His reign began at a time when Assyria, that is modern-day Iraq, was fast becoming a superpower. Under a king by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III, who reigned from 745 to 727 B.C., Assyria had for a long time been flexing its military political muscles, expanding its empire westward and southward, posing a real threat to Syria, Israel, and surrounding countries. You see, the driving ambition of this king, Tiglath-Pileser III, otherwise known as Pul in 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 19, was all about controlling the lucrative trade route that ran through those regions. In 738 BC, Assyria brought pressure on Damascus and Israel, exacting tribute from these lands. But after a while, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, saying as it were, enough is enough, formed a resistance coalition against the Assyrian hegemony. And they sought to enlist the support of Ahaz and his father Jotham, with whom he was co-regent of the kingdom of Judah, but both father and son refused to join forces with these dissident kings. So in retaliation for their refusal to support the coalition, Rezin and Pekah initiated military Efforts to invade Judah, we read of this in 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 37. It was this military threat from Rezin and Pekah to which Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1 
was referring, we read there, in those days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. They came, they were outside the city, and for some reason they were not able to mount an attack. They were not able to launch an attack against the kingdom of Judah. And one would ask the question, why were they able to launch this attack against Ahaz's kingdom? Scripture doesn't tell us. But it shouldn't be too hard for us to figure why, because based on what followed with the Lord sending the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz here in Isaiah 7, it seems that the Lord was granting reprieve to Ahaz and the people of Judah to turn from their wickedness, which of course we'll look at in a while. God was using this military crisis as a wake-up call for Ahaz and the people of Judah And he was also giving Ahaz an opportunity to trust him for deliverance. That clearly is suggested when we read closely the passage. God was out to reach this king, Ahaz, in mercy and in grace. We're told in verse 2 that when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Translation, they were panic-stricken. They were greatly terrified, frightened out of their wits, or as we'd say today, they were scared to death. When Ahaz and the people of Judah heard and saw the surrounding armies of this coalition between Syria and Israel, they were thrown into utter confusion and perplexity. They were terrified. And the question is, how did things get to this point where the land and kingdom of God's covenant Favor and purposes, that is the land of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, was in such grave danger of being overrun and destroyed by invading forces. How was it that such a favored kingdom was under threat of attack and indeed in danger of being decimated? To the purely secular mind, to the purely secular world, just as it would be in our time, this would be attributed to, among other factors, underdeveloped weaponry, a lack of adequate economic resources. But from the perspective of the Word of God, this particular crisis, beloved, stemmed from the fact that King Ahaz and his people, the people of Judah, were out of sync with God. I want us to take a note of that very carefully. Because, you see, when a nation forgets God, when a nation has jettisoned the word of God, when a nation places God on the back burner, so to speak, anything goes as far as the welfare of that country is concerned. The truth was that the real crisis that Ahaz and the southern kingdom of Judah faced was not military, nor was it economic in nature. The real crisis they faced was spiritual in nature. The nation had forgotten God. 
We know that because 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 37 explicitly says that in those days the Lord began to send Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. In other words, God was the one who was at work. God was moving in judgment against Ahaz and the southern kingdom of Judah. And one only has to read the biblical account of the kind of man that King Ahaz was. And understand then why the Lord would have done that. You see, as far as his life and character were concerned, Ahaz, we could say, was the epitome of sheer ungodliness. A sad example of unfaithfulness to the Lord. He, according to one writer, was one of the most evil rulers of the southern kingdom of Judah. He came to the throne when he was just 20 years old. Evidently, he was progressive, as the saying goes. His father, Jotham, lived in his days. He lived his time. This was a new age. And so what happened was this, that just as many a young person today shakes off their sacred, godly traditions learned at home, they go off to college, they become, as the saying goes, radical in their thinking, progressive in their thinking. They jettison faith in God, commitment to God. They no longer share the values of the Christian. And faith. That was King Ahaz. In 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, he is presented as an idolatrous king who committed great acts of apostasy and unfaithfulness toward God. From the outset of his reign, Ahaz took a 180 degree turn from the ways of his four immediate predecessors who were by and large Godly men. We're talking about the likes of Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham. We read in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Here's what scripture says. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Ahaz was one of those who suggested that Christianity, that the faith of Israel was not the only way. One had to be open. One had to be open-minded. One had to recognize that there were other legitimate religions. And what had happened, Ahaz resorted to worshiping the god Moloch. He engaged in child sacrifice. He sacrificed his own son according to the abominable, despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. Second Chronicles 28 verse 3 records his erecting images for the Baals. These were Canaanite fertility deities who represented the god Baal. In addition, Second Chronicles 28 verse 4 says that he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This man forgot totally the altar of God. He had forgotten the altar of God, the worship of God, he had resorted to pagan idolatrous practices. Everything that his godly grandfather Uzziah and his forefather David did and stood for, Ahaz radically rejected. 
In negative ways, he, to use a catchphrase of our time, fundamentally transformed the land of Judah such that idolatrous heathen worship and practices became the order of the day. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of his father David, Ahaz had forgotten, had wickedly abandoned. This was truly an astoundingly wicked king. 2 Corinthians 28 verse 5 explicitly attributes the invasion, this invasion that was taking place recorded in chapter 7 verses 1 and following of our text. 2 Chronicles explicitly attributes the invasion and ultimate defeat of Judah by Israel and Syria to his acts of apostasy and unfaithfulness. But notice from our text, before the judgment of God fell, Before the judgment of God fell on Judah, the Lord sent his prophet. He sent his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz with a message. A message that was designed to dissuade him from caving in to the coalition forces. A message of counsel and assurance to strengthen and solidify his faith. The word of God to Ahaz through the prophet was that he should not be agitated. He should not be fretful. He should not be fearful. That he should not be panicky. But that he should rest in the Lord in faith and in trust. Isaiah was to say to the king, look at verse 4a. This is what Isaiah was told by God to say to Ahaz. And how we need this in our time. Here's what the prophet said to Ahaz. In the midst of his turmoil, in the midst of his angst, his crisis, military threat around him, the prophet went to him from God saying these words, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be troubled. What a message. These words of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, echoed the words of Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 3, the contents of which the priest back in the Old Testament was to address Israel as they launched out into battle. As Israel drew near to battle, the priest were to say to the people, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. Isaiah was clearly reflecting on Deuteronomy 20 and verse 3. And while he was speaking to King Ahaz, he no doubt remembered that throughout Israel's history, God was their faithful defender, God was their faithful protector, delivering them from the hand of their enemies, fighting on their behalf. And so he says to Ahaz, Ahaz, your situation is not different. You are in a situation of political and military turmoil, but here's the truth. Just settle yourself. Just be calm. Don't be fretful. Don't be fearful. Why? Because God is in charge. I wonder this morning if there are those among us whom God might be saying, why are you fearful? Be quiet. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint. And my friends, this is the very message of Advent because you remember on the night when Jesus was born, the angel, part of the message of the angels to the shepherd was this, fear not. 
Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Let me say this morning that the message of Advent, the glorious message of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth, is this, that we need not fear. Why? Because our Savior reigns. Our Savior, having paid for our sins, having risen from the dead, is alive. He's at the right hand of God. And the truth is, my friends, we can rest content in the fact that he is the one who goes before us. He is the one who fights our battles. And let me say this, we have a lot of enemies. We have formidable enemies who, if they had their way, they would wipe us out entirely. We're talking about the devil and his cohorts. And so given the daunting military posturing of Syria and Israel against the land of Judah at this time, these words of the prophet echoing Deuteronomy 20 and verse 3 were most relevant and timely for Ahaz. Isaiah was encouraging Ahaz not to fear the military crisis, but to rely on God and God alone for help. Now, to bolster his faith, look at what God did. God, through the prophet Isaiah, gave Ahaz ample reasons as to why he should not be fearful, but why he should trust in the Lord and not be terrified by the military posturing of the Syrian-Israeli coalition that had come up against him. And as Isaiah explained, Ahaz should not fear the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the sons of Ramaliah because these two kings were really nothing but two smoldering stumps of firebrands. He says that here in chapter 7. We see it in verse 4. Say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. The imagery here of smoldering stumps of firebrand signified the waning political power and influence of these two kings. Indeed, what Isaiah was saying to Ahaz was this, that they were not a formidable threat to him and to his kingdom. They were not the threat they appeared to be, that like burnt out firebrands, they were all smoke but no fire. He was saying to Ahaz, in short, that these enemies of his were on their way out. They had no future. They had no prospect of continuance. They had no longevity because in just a few decades, their power would be all gone. As such, there was nothing of real threat from these two kings that should induce Ahaz to panic and dread. This was the message whereby Isaiah sought to assure and encourage the faint-hearted Ahaz, but Isaiah continues with even more, with even stronger words of encouragement for Ahaz. Notice he assured him in verses 5 and 6 that whereas Syria, along with Ephraim, that is Israel, was planning to terrify and conquer Judah, intending to replace him with another king, verses 5 and 6, the whole scheme would flop. It would be unsuccessful. Listen to what God, through the prophet, said to Ahaz. Hear the words of Isaiah. Verses 7 and 8, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resident and within six to five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. These were the people that were standing outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside the kingdom of Judah, waiting to invade, to tear down the place. Isaiah says, look at them. 
Those two kings, they're just firebrands. They're smoldering wicks. They're on their way out. They are all smoke, but no fire, no threat. Isaiah could speak with such a short conviction. He could speak with such unflinching certainty. Why? Because he well knew this, that the God of Israel was Lord not only of nations, but that he was Lord of human history and human events. That as a sovereign Lord of all, he was ultimately in control of the processes of history, ordering all people, events, and circumstances according to his will and purpose. Isaiah could look at Ahaz and say, thus says the Lord, here's what the Lord says, it's not going to happen. Why could he say that? Because he knew who controlled history. Let me say this, there's nothing more soothing and comforting to the worrying, fretful soul than the understanding that God Almighty is in control of our circumstances and of all that befalls us. My friends, how true the saying, the true the saying that history is really nothing but his story. So that whereas by human reckoning it was impossible for Judah to stop the invading forces, to stop the onslaught and schemes of Syria and Israel, God, the bona fide controller of human history, could assertively decree, it shall not come to pass, it's not going to happen. Can I say this? Am I allowed to say this? We today, in fact, we listen to our governors, our politicians, and the great fear is that there's going to be this nuclear blow-up that's going to destroy the planet. May I say this on the authority of God's word? It's not going to happen. I happen to know that. And let me take I out of it. It's a fact. Why? Because God himself, when he comes back, he, the word of God tells us, the whole world is going to be on fire. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The world and the works that are in it will be what? Burnt up. And then, praise God, what will he bring in? What will he usher in? A new heaven and a new earth. Listen, man cannot destroy this planet. God Almighty, the creator of this world, the proprietor of this world, the one in whom all things consist, the one who opposes all things by the word of his power, has his world under his sovereign control. That is why we don't have to worry and fret about preserving the environment. God has that under perfect sovereign control. And with this statement of Isaiah came this summary clincher to Ahaz in the last two lines of verse 9. Here was what the prophet said to this unfaithful king. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not trusting God, you're not going to be successful. Try as you might, scheme as you might, save as you might, strategize as you will. You are not going to prosper. You are not going to make it apart from faith in God, is what he's saying. Here, as I was firmly impressing on Ahaz, the need for faith, faith in the power and protection of the Lord, faith in the faithful covenant-keeping God, who has promised never to leave his people in their crisis, in their distresses. Isaiah was calling on Ahaz to have faith in the God who had made covenant with his people, with his forefather David, to establish his kingdom forever. And this faith in God to which King Ahaz was being called was way more than mere notional or cognitive belief in God. 
Such faith in God demanded his entrusting his entire life, his entire security, his entire well-being, as well as the security and well-being of the people of Judah to the power and providence of God, even when doing so seemed irrational, even when doing so seemed impractical, even when doing so would seem to be a recipe for disaster. Do you know, my friends, that's the nature of faith? Because, you see, the true nature of faith is this. It is to act squarely on the basis of the faithful, trustworthy character of God and the integrity of his word. That's what faith is all about. And that being the case, faith is not always seemingly rational. Faith does not seem to make sense at all times. Such faith, as described by one commentator, is a matter of practical reliance upon the assurance of God in a context of risk, he says, where one's resources are not adequate. He says this, it means to entrust one's security and future to the attentiveness of Yahweh. To count God's attentiveness as adequate and sure, thereby making panic, anxiety, or foolishness unnecessary and inappropriate. And then he says this, it is to know oneself safe in risk because of him whose resources are mobilized and whose commitments are unfailing. It is to place oneself into the reliable care of another. And so what words of encouragement from the prophet to Ahaz? What message of reassurance? What message of hope in the hour of his crisis? When his kingdom seemed to be almost on the verge of being overrun by military forces. This coalition of, of Syria and Israel. And the thing to note, my friends, the thing that's most noteworthy as we look at the passage is this. Here was a wicked king. Here was a wicked, ungodly ruler. Here was a man who was unfaithful to God. A man who had no regard for God for the, or for the sacred God-fearing traditions of his fathers. A man who through political policies did everything to dishonor God and his word. And yet... That's why we can't give up, you know. We look at people today and we say, boy, they're so wicked, they're so cruel, they're so awful. But here's why we can't give up. Notice that as wicked as this king was, as ungodly as this king was, the Lord sent him his prophet. The Lord sent him his prophet Isaiah to counsel him, to encourage him, to bolster his faith in God, to strengthen and steer him away from making foolish impulsive decisions out of fear of his political enemies. Decisions that would not only dishonor the Lord, but which would lead to disastrous, disastrous consequences. And the question is, why did the Lord act in such manner toward Ahaz? Why did God take time out to send his prophet to this king Ahaz, considering how wicked he had been? And let me give you some suggestions. First and foremost... The context of the passage suggests that he did it out of covenant loyalty to who? To David. God sent his prophet to this wicked, ungodly king because of his covenant loyalty to David, particularly with respect to the covenant he had made with David, known as the Davidic covenant. We refer to it today as the Davidic covenant. What was the Davidic covenant all about? In a word, it is this, Second Samuel 7 verse 16, that his house and his kingdom would be made sure forever. 
that his throne would be established forever. And that covenant was of such massive importance, such massive significance that you'll notice in verse 2 that King Ahaz and his people are referred to not as such, but they are referred to as the house of David. They're referred to as the house of David. Later down in verse 13, Isaiah addresses Ahaz, not by the name Ahaz, but O house of David. We do that today, don't we? We don't say President Biden or President whoever is in office. We say the White House. You see, that's what Isaiah is doing here. And in appealing to house of David, he is bringing to the forefront of Ahaz's mind, here's why you must not be fearful, Ahaz, because of the Davidic covenant. God had faithfully covenanted with David that his kingdom would endure forever. Listen up, Ahaz. Your kingdom is very much a part of that kingdom. That's why you need not worry. That's why you need not fret. That's why you need to trust the Lord. In addition, we would say that in the end, the Lord sent the prophet Isaiah to counsel Ahaz in the way of faith in God so as to lead him to repentance and reformation of life. Indeed, when Ahaz was not seeking God, do you see it in the passage? When Ahaz was about his wicked ungodly ways, burning his sons to Moloch, Worshipping pagan idols, discarding the word of God, God in grace came to Ahaz in his depravity through his prophet Isaiah, encouraging him, bolstering his faith in God. Listen, my friends, in this we see something of the mercy and grace of God. Isn't that the message of Advent? Because indeed, here's the point. It was when we were rebels against God, wicked in our minds by and alienated from him, that God in mercy and grace came to where we were, established peace, established reconciliation between himself and us. That is the message of the gospel we preach this morning. Now in verses 10 through 12, but we're moving ahead quickly, bear with me now, we see yet another overture of divine grace to Ahaz. And here we see the Lord was relentlessly bringing Ahaz, seeking Ahaz, seeking, endeavoring to bring Ahaz to the place of faith and trust and dependence on him, which tells us this, that the Lord knew well the heart of Ahaz. Why was God so relentless? Why was God so persistent through his prophet to get through to Ahaz presenting argument after argument as to why he should trust the Lord? Because the Lord knew exactly the bent of Ahaz's heart. He knew, God knew, that notwithstanding the call for Ahaz to look away from his circumstances, to look away from joining with the coalition, to look away from joining and seeking Assyria for help, the Lord knew that even in the face of all the counsel he was receiving, that was the exact thing he wanted to do and which he's going to end up doing. He's going to look to Assyria for help. So in verses 10 through 11, God in mercy, look what God in mercy did. God made a proposal to Ahaz. The Lord made a proposal to Ahaz. We read, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. You see that word again? God never gives up. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. What was God saying to him? Depending on how high you sit to jump, I'll jump. In other words, anything you want to, for me to do by way of the spectacular, by way of the fantastic, by way of the abnormal, 
If my doing that is going to convince you, ask me for such a sign. Put me to the test. Here we see the amazing, incredible patience and forbearance of God toward this faithless Ahaz. Well, what was Ahaz's response? Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Do you know what Ahaz was doing there? Here's what Ahaz was doing. He was engaging in religious posturing. He was feigning piety. With pious platitude, he was playing the hypocrite, suggesting he had faith in God and that therefore there was no need to put God to the test. I will not ask the Lord for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. I believe. I don't have to trust in signs is what he was saying. But deep in his heart, he was bent toward Assyria, looking to Assyria for help. The truth of the matter is was that his refusal to take up the Lord's offer was because he had already a decided commitment to look to Assyria for help rather than looking to the Lord. Behind his response to the Lord was actually, watch this, was actually a refusal to trust in God. And the sad thing was this, beloved, that with his refusal to trust the Lord, he decidedly rejected the Lord. What a tragedy. The bottom line was that driven by cowardly fear, Ahaz, rather than trusting in the Lord, was determined to devise his own means of salvation. He was intent on relying on his own worldly-wise political maneuvering. It was then that Isaiah sternly addressed him in verse 13 with these words, Hear then, O house of David. Again, he doesn't call him by his name. He appeals to the house of David because he's hammering on the point. Listen, God made a covenant with David that his dynasty is going to last forever. Ahaz, your kingdom is part of that kingdom. And he says then to Ahaz, this is where he's through with Ahaz now. He says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Here Isaiah charged Ahaz with having wearied men. What is he saying? That Ahaz has taxed the patience of men. Whose patience has Ahaz taxed? God's prophet who brought to him God's word and he kept rejecting it. He kept disbelieving it. But if that wasn't bad enough, he says, will you weary my God also? May I say this to you, my friends? It's a very sobering warning. We are living in an age in which doubt and fear are glorified. People will ensconce themselves in the idea, that's how I am. I'm a worrywart. I'm fretful. I am just given to doubt. But how many of you know the word of God suggests that if we just keep doubting God, we just keep doubting God, we never trust him. We actually what? Weary him. God is displeased with our doubting, our relentless doubting when we refuse to trust him. He is not pleased, he is wearied. That's what the word of God suggests. And notice, Isaiah spoke to him. He says, will you weary my God? What do you know he said? He didn't say, will you weary your God? Why? Because as far as Isaiah was concerned, Ahaz had completely been through with God so that he could no longer legitimately claim that God was his God. He had rejected him. And so in view of Ahaz's refusal to take up the Lord's offer, to ask God for a sign, to bolster his faith to trust God, Isaiah then told him these words, verse 14 of our text. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now I make a confession to you. If I'm to deal with this 
portion. It's going to take a little while. So in the interest of time, let me just say this. Suffice it to say that the reference here is ultimately, watch this, it's ultimately a reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because Matthew 1.23 underscores it. The fact of his coming into the world, taking on human flesh, born of a virgin, becoming our Emmanuel God with us. And beloved, indeed, the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus attests to the blessed truth, assuring truth that it is in the hour of crisis, just as it was for Ahaz, that God in mercy and grace becomes our Emmanuel. God comes alongside us in our sufferings, in our crises, in our moments of desperation. God is ever with us. He was with the children of Israel in Exodus as they faced pressure from Pharaoh under Egyptian bondage. He has ever been with his people. The closing words of our Lord Jesus as he left this earth was this. He says, and behold, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Indeed, he is our Emmanuel. Indeed, it was precisely in the midst of our misery, our lostness, brought on by the fall of Adam, that God in the person of Jesus Christ became our Emmanuel. And my friends, you are not saved. The message to you is this, that he can save you and not only save you, but set you on a path of meaning, of fulfillment, of purpose, if only you would trust him. We're going to bring this down to a smooth landing now. Question, in the end, how did things turn out with Ahaz? I'm sure you'd ask that question. Where did Ahaz go from here? As we hinted in the message, you know what Ahaz did? Yes, you're right. He ended up turning to Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria for help. He ended up paying tribute to him. He ended up becoming a vassal of Assyria, a decision which severely hurt him and hurt the kingdom of Judah politically and more so spiritually. Listen, in consequence of all his bad decisions, his poor decision, because he was given to panic and fear and fretfulness, his many acts of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Here's how 2 Chronicles 28, 19 through 21 summarizes his decision. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. He brought woe, he brought misery upon the nation. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came against him. Watch this, the very king that he looked to for help. Look at what happened in the end. The king... Tiglath-Pileser came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. What is the message? Feed the dragon, play with the dragon, and you won't survive to tell the tale. We never circumvent the will of God. We never go contrary to the will of God. We never run our own show. We never devise our own salvation to our own, without its being to our own detriment. That's the message of Ahaz. And as a token of divine justice, following his death, Ahaz, the word of God tells us, was buried without honor. Instead of his body being buried in royal tombs, the tombs of the kings, he was buried in the city of Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 28, verse 27. He was buried in utter disgrace. What price we pay when we forsake the Lord, when we reject him out of our lives. You know, crisis has a way of not only revealing, but solidifying our character. Yes, 
And this was true of King Ahaz. Ahaz's fundamental problem was that of a lack of faith in God before, during, and after his political crises. Ahaz had more faith in political strategies than he had in God and the word of God. In this regard, he embodies the real ultimate problem of not just the southern kingdom of Judah, but indeed of the northern kingdom of Israel. The problem of faithlessness toward God. Oh, my friends, faithlessness is an awful thing. It's a wicked thing. It will cause us to sin to unimaginable depths. That's why God hates unbelief. Very quickly, and I know time has gone. Question. What are the enduring lessons of this text? Because you see, here's the point. This evening and tomorrow, Lord willing, when we sit at the table and we're enjoying a nice Christmas meal, here's what we can say were the enduring lessons we took away today. Number one is this. Here it comes. The lesson of Ahaz is this, that even when, even when our circumstances seem daunting and threatening to our security, we must trust in the Lord and not lean on the arm of flesh. Even when our circumstances seem daunting, even when the world seems to be falling apart, the earth is moving from under our feet, we should trust in the Lord. We should not be afraid. We should rest in him and be quiet. What is the arm of flesh? It is those things, persons, resources to which we look, instinctively look for a sense of control, personal security, and well-being. Are you looking to something other than God, maybe a 401k? Nothing is wrong with having a sense of security, knowing that we are financially stable. But here's the point. If that becomes the be-all and end-all of our security, of our existence, we are in a bad way because tomorrow things can crash. Those things which we allow to displace uh, and guard it from our lives, our reliance on God, constitute the arm of flesh. To rely on the arm of flesh is to walk by sight, relying only on what our senses and our circumstances dictate. It is to look to someone else, some person of influence in life as though they are the be-all and end-all of your life. Is there somebody you're looking on that you say, boy, if they're gone, everything is over? To look to a political party or government as Ahaz did for a sense of security while not drowning our faith and trust first and foremost in the living God is to rely on the arm of flesh and is displeasing to God. Secondly, here's the second truth we learn. Trusting and confiding in anything or anyone other than the Lord will sooner or later prove disastrous. It was true of Ahaz, sadly. Number three, third lesson. God patiently bears with us, endeavoring to strengthen and encourage our faith. Don't, don't you see that in Ahaz? Step after step after step. Lord finally says, okay, Ahaz, ask of me a sign. If you say jump this high, I'll jump. God is faithful and bears with us, endeavoring to strengthen our faith. And one way he does that is through answered prayers. The songwriter puts it like this. Praise to the Lord, who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires there have been granted in what he ordaineth. Praise to the Lord, who doth prosper thy work and defend thee surely. His goodness and mercy here daily attender, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Answered prayer. Hasn't he answered your prayers? He will come through for you in the future. Tremendous passage, encouraging passage, challenging passage. 
a call to faith and trust in God, even when it seems nonsensical and irrational to do so. You know, the call of the gospel, the cross of Christ, is, is foolishness to those who are perishing because it doesn't make sense. But here's the point. It is the power of God to those who believe. Christ our Savior, our Messiah, was not a political warrior. He was crucified in weakness, in shame, in degradation, and yet there lay the power of Almighty God, particularly when God raised him from the dead. May God strengthen us in this season of Advent, and may we take to heart his word, to his glory, for Christ's sake. Amen. <laughs>